0: You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Joey Santori is a botanist and the host of the awesome YouTube channel called Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't. And in my opinion, he's created some of the best Aussie plant content online even though he's from the US. In this episode, we're gonna have a look at some of our native Australian flora through his eyes. If you've seen any of his videos, you'll know that he doesn't hold back with his language. And I haven't bleeped anything out, so please be warned that this episode contains explicit content. Thanks for coming on the show, mate.
1: Mm Mm-hmm, yeah, no problem.
0: Yeah, I'm actually a huge fan of yours, and we had a fan of our show reach out and say that they wanted to hear you on our show.
1: Okay, right on.
0: So can you tell us about what factors have made the Australian continent unique from what you saw over in Western Australia?
1: Well, in Western Australia, I mean, geology was one of the first things I was reading about. You've got a lot of nutrient-poor rocks, a higher proportion of nutrient-poor very old rocks. And part of the reason they're so nutrient-poor is because they're so old. There hasn't been much, if any, volcanism recently, which is how you you get new material churned up on the surface of the earth, on the crust, uh, in a long time. So it's like a lot of leached granites, you know. And so, you know, plants have to figure out a way to cope with that. There's numerous ways, you know, parasitism, mycorrhizae, uh, the proteas have proteoid roots, which I forget the exact method of action. They secrete some kind of enzyme that basically, you know, is able to release phosphorus. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but basically make phosphorus available as well as other other nutrients you know, so that the roots can take it out. The, the roots on pro, a lot of the proteaceae, which is a very old family of flowering plants, you know, kind of look like some, like a, like a someone cut their hair and threw it in the, you know, the trash can, like that kind of thing. Like just like these mats of hair, more like pubes actually. To be, uh, let's not beat around the bush here. To use a pun, you know, if you if you look at proteoid roots, they're you know like these mats of just really dense hairy roots. So. That's one way, but yeah, like I said, parasitism. I mean, you've got that Noitzia floribunda, the, uh, the Christmas tree, as they call it, the common name, the giant parasite, you know, Loranthaceae. There's, of course, Drosera is huge there. That's a good way to get nitrogen if there's not, if you're growing in crappy soil. Lots of carnivorous plants, you know, Cephalotus, et cetera. So yeah, I mean, a friend, uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Robert Madden, he's in Perth still. And, uh, he, you know, he, he knows a lot more about the geology there than I do, but I mean, it's, it's really old material. I mean, that's you've got like, you know, fossil stromatolites in the Pilbara up there. That's like, yeah, you know, I think some of the oldest, not the oldest rock, but the definitely the old, some of the oldest fossils in the world, like 3.8 billion years or something. So, so yeah, really old nutrient poor rocks. And, uh, And then, yeah, of course, you know, it's been, you know, increasingly drying out since I think the Miocene or the Oligocene, like roughly 25 to 30 million years ago, I think Miocene. So, yeah, so those are just a few. Parasitism, proteoid roots, mycorrhizae, uh, carnivory, those are a few of the ways that plants in Australia deal with that nutrient-poor soil. If you go to the east, I I think it's a little bit different, especially when you have summer rain. But, you know, the west is where I spend most of the time. And when I went there, I thought I was going to be able to get up to the Pilbara and you see all this other cool stuff. I mean, I was so overwhelmed for two or three weeks just staying in, in a relatively small... I mean, there was just so much to see, you know, so...
0: So is part of the reason why they're nutrient-poor because they're really old rocks and they've broken down a really long time ago. A lot of plants and animals have already used up those nutrients and they've sort of moved on.
1: Or it's just been leached through weathering processes. Yeah, and, and there's, there hasn't been any volcanism. Like I said, there hasn't been any any upkick of... I mean, that's, volcanism's how you get, you know, volcanic soil is generally very rich, especially when it's had a a couple million years to weather. And there hasn't been any volcanics, any volcanism in Western Australia in a long time. I mean, you get volcanism either through subduction zones or through hotspot volcanism. And there's no subduction zones around the western edge of the Australian continent. And there's certainly no hotspot volcanism. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah makes for a lousy situation. It's just all that weathered granite. You know, you get these big granite plutons. You'll see them in the eucalyptus forest. You know, it'll be dense woodland. And then you just get this giant football field-sized boulder of granite. And the plant life growing on the granite is completely different from anything else growing in the eucalypt forest. It's really cool. I mean, so you get kind of like a little microhabitat with more, with a different kind of diversity uh, than you get in that eucalypt woodland.
0: So I guess we've had fire more recently in Australia. How long has fire been a a force that's impacted Australian wildlife?
1: I, I mean, from what I can tell, yeah, roughly like 20 million years, maybe longer, but I mean, that's, you know, since things have been drying out, I mean, the dryness is moving south, too. the rain is moving south. So that's, I mean, I don't know what that spells for Western Australia, some of those you know, incredibly large eucalyptus trees, uh, Jacksonii and uh, what is it, Diversicolor and some of the other species that they, these forests that kind of, you know, rival California's redwood forest, both in climate and in size of the this, the plants themselves, the trees themselves. You know, they're they're really foggy, wet, generally kind of wet places. They're all uh, you know, I don't know what climate change is going to spell for them because everything is moving poleward, both in the north and south hemisphere. So. As you get an expansion of these dry areas, some of those forests might go out. The wildfire, you know, being being Western Australia, being one of the five places in the world you get Mediterranean climate, the others being Chile, South Africa, California, and the Mediterranean. Since the hottest time of the year is also the driest time of the year, yeah, there's fires bound to happen. Of course, you get fire in the east too, but it's from what I know about the east, having not been there, is that it's you get... Less of the fire adapted plants in Eastern Australia than you do in the West. And it's the same here in California. Lots of fire adapted plants, plants that with seeds that won't germinate unless they're exposed to smoke or heat. You get things like soil seed banks where like the the, the seeds just build up in the soil and just wait there sometimes for 30, 40, 50 years until a fire comes through. And uh, cones and conifers that won't open unless the resin melts between them. But of course, you know, Australia, like California, has had a lot of fire suppression. And, you know, it's only been recently the last few decades that people have kind of realized that that was a bad thing to do, that fire is part of this landscape and it's going to happen whether you like it or not when you don't have any summer rain. And so do you want these low burning prescribed burns or do you want to wait, you know, 60 years until you get that one drought period and that really harsh hot spell and, you know, then you get a massive inferno that totally annihilates the forest makes uh, seedling germination nearly impossible and, uh, and kills a lot of people. So, you know, it's the same in South Africa. A lot of the plants there need a smoke treatment. I mean, they even sell it for plant propagators, these these kind of like liquid smoke. It's like a batch of chemicals that you have to treat the seed with. I was surprised in in, in Australia to see, I mean, there's a, you guys have that podocarp. It's, podocarpus, I'm probably going to mangle the species name, but it doesn't matter. It's Latin. Podocarpus druianus or whatever. How, do, how would the fuck you spell it? D-R-O-U. And it's a fire its a fire adapted podocarp, which to me is so weird because it's podocarpaceae is such an old family of conifers. I mean, it's like, you know, Jurassic age family of conifers. And here you have one that's adapted to fire. I think, you know, I saw it, you know, in a recently burned area. I forget what, it's a stump sprouter. I forget what exactly, I, th- I think it doesn't release pollen or something unless it's, it's been two years since I've been there, but it doesn't release pollen or something unless it's, you know gets a fire i mean and that's one of you know a few hundred species that are that respond to fire so and it makes sense i mean fire releases a lot of nutrients makes a lot of nutrients available to plants and it also releases or it you know it, it creates a lot of uh, a lack of competition so it creates like a blank slate for for new plants to grow and it's fucking great i mean it's you know here you go to like some of the prairies in the central states like illinois or kansas and Oklahoma, Missouri, I mean, those those are all those all have fire dependent flora too. I mean, they get summer rain, but certainly like in the fall and stuff, a lot of the indigenous people would burn the prairies, you know, if anything, to get rid of ticks and create better hunting grounds, you know, so animals couldn't hide. So yeah, I mean it's and this is something that people, at least Europeans are still people of European descent are just are still learning, you know, in terms of managing managing land. So
0: yeah, I'm working in a, an environment that's basically for council, and I cannot really imagine how you'd get the permit for burning. I, I've never talked to anyone about it, but um, yeah, maybe look into that one day and see if I can try and get that on our land, because at the moment, it's just going to be hedging down poa grass, which would love to be burnt.
1: Yeah, that's nuts. I mean, you look at like banksia infructescences, some people call them cones, but that, that's not really the right word for it. And that you know those little mouths, a lot of them don't open unless I mean, fuck, man, it was crazy. I saw you know especially the Banksias. What a cool genus. I mean, and you see these these Banksias with this bark that just is fucking waiting to be burned. It's just you know it's just it's like this thick corky bark. You look at like the some of the Melaleucas and the other you know Mertaceae uh, members, and they've got this really papery thick bark. That just these things are just have evolved. They've been through such selective pressure with fire i mean 20 million years of fire being a part of that landscape and it's readily evident in the flora there they got mushrooms too that only come up after fire too They i didn't i mean which makes sense i you know but i mean to me it's still kind of because i'm not much of a mushroom guy i like them but i just don't pay attention to them that much but yeah it's yeah they're cool man there's all the fire dependent flora there's probably more there than there are in california which makes sense because australia has been drier and hotter for longer from what i know so fire has probably been around a few more million years in australia giving the plants a little bit more time to evolve with it so
0: mm, there you go so what characteristics tend to be missing from the plants that you saw as opposed to like what you'd see in europe or maybe even america
1: i mean not not i mean the, the proteaceae are uh you know, you can generally tell them even if they're not in flower because they've got a, a specific, you know, the foliage is always normally kind of hard and, and leathery and, you know, in some cases feels like plastic and and the venation is not too complex. You can generally tell the proteaceae, even if they're not in flower, and we don't have many plants like that out in California, you know, at least not flowering plants that have that kind of weird morphology and very woody, but also have this kind of like primitive, quote, primitive venation in the the leaves and kind of, you know, sclerophyllous or or feels like hard plastic sometimes. But something that surprised me, and I was talking to a friend of mine, my friend Peter Bernard about this, who's actually spent a lot of time in Australia studying orchids. And uh, something that surprised me was that the flowers down there, you know, from like the merbellioid peas to some of the pimileas to... The orchids, whatever, but everything's really brightly colored, like in a way that even if I didn't, if I saw it in a botanic garden and I wasn't told or I saw a picture of it and I wasn't told where it was from, I could probably be like, that's Southern Hemisphere. That's either South Africa or that's Australia. And there's, I don't know why. I like the 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 rebellioid peas, you know, the gastrolobium and all, all those cool members of the legume family down there all have like day you know, hot pink, hot orange like just really vivid, bright colors. And you, you just don't see that kind of color palette, if you want to use that word, in the flora of North America very often, which is, you know, I wonder, and I I still wonder about that. I, I wonder why. I'm like, what? I don't even know if there's a name for it or what, but I, it's definitely something I noticed being down there. I'm like, fuck, this is so wild. Like everything's like day glow color, the flowers on these I, I When I saw Australian legumes, I was blown away. I mean, I was so... They're so cool. They're so, you know, vividly colored. They're so different. It's just, I mean, they look like something that, you know, split off evolutionarily from the Northern hemisphere peas 50 million years ago, and then never grew with them again, you know? So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It, cool stuff. The, the rebellioid peas were probably one of my favorite things that, that I saw it on there that I just, I wasn't expecting. I mean, I like the orchids too. I like the cephalotus. I like the xanthorias, all that stuff, but they the merbellioid peas, man. And that's what's saving a lot of your guys' native fauna, too, because of that compound 1080, which some people don't like, but, you know, and maybe it's, you know, it is, it can be kind of a sloppy way, but it's, it's at least in terms of, you know, the foxes and the feral cats, which are decimating the native Australian flora, that's been a huge, a huge help in, you know, eliminating them. I mean, what, what people need is laws mandating that people keep their fucking cats inside and, don't allow you know releasing foxes for hunting but you know i don't know the the gastrolobe and of course the reason gastrolobium the compound 1080 the what is it floral whatever it's called whatever that compound is the reason it doesn't affect many of the western australian mammals is of course is cuz they've evolved with it which is uh which is cool too so yeah i don't know i don't know i just yeah the 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 merbellioid peas cuz they're in the that tribe Marbellier, I think that's the name of it. Yeah, that was that was definitely a, a pleasant surprise that I wasn't expecting when I when I got down there.
0: So they're toxic then, to and they have an effect on. I didn't quite understand the 1080s, Did you yeah, say? Yeah, you so, say?
1: so so ten eighty. You know, if you go in the forests of, of Western Australia, maybe Eastern Australia too, you see these signs that say "Don't let your pets run around loose," because there's these poisoned sausages that they airdrop in the forest there, uh-huh. because there's no there's not many native carnivores, you know? And, uh, and so people, you know, letting their cats run loose, which is a fucking horrible thing to do. I mean, yeah. for the cat's it sake, is. and for, for the animals they kill, I mean, same thing with dogs, but you know, a lot of countries don't, don't allow people doing that anyway. I mean, dogs can really mess things up too, but, but cats, especially since they can climb trees and climb fences and whatever, And so, you know, I think cats are like one of the leading causes of bird deaths in the world, probably before buildings, even building collisions. And so, one of the, I'm not sure the history of 1080 or how it came about, but it was found out that this, you know, it's known that the genus Gastrolobium has been poisonous for a long time. Ranchers will let their sheep eat it and they don't die. You're poisonous to mammals, at least. And so then the the compound in 1080 was synthesized and then put into these sausages. And it was realized that, that Gastrolobium and, and, the lead, You know, if native mammals in Australia ate this stuff, it didn't really affect them that much, you know, because they've evolved with it. So so this has probably been around in, in Australian plants for a long time. It probably evolved as a defense against herbivory or in gastrolobium specifically. But, you know, quite a few of those those legumes are, are really toxic, you know, the, the poison peas. So, yeah, they would just airdrop. And I saw those signs everywhere, you know, it was like, you just, you know, don't let your dog run, you know, just keep an eye on your pets, basically. And so, you know, and I know with foxes, it's been a huge thing. The cats have been a little bit more selective about eating it, but it's definitely helped, you know? So I think really that the answer to most of that is going to probably be some sort of like genetic thing where they create, you know, they, they, they genetically modify cats so that they only release, they only produce male offspring and then just flood the country with those. And it's, it's, you know, they're still going to be killing stuff, but eventually. The idea being there's not going to be any, you know, any any female offspring and eventually they'll just die out, you know, but you've also got to have laws that make it illegal to let your pets roam. So I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's it's tragic. I mean, like the numbat, a really cool Australian marsupial, you know, is on the verge of extinction primarily from from cats. You know, I think they got most of the foxes that were out there, but, you know, it's just another, it's just another example of, you know, when you introduce a species, whether it's plant or animal to a new continent that it has in an ecosystem it hasn't evolved with and there's no checks and balances for it. They run, they can sometimes, oftentimes run loose and cause just ecological destruction and sometimes collapse and some, a lot of times species extinction. So, you know, but anyway, yeah, the, the merbellioid peas are, are sick. I love those things. So, and the flowers are beautiful. So
0: Yeah, so they're poisonous, and that goes against what we often hear about the Fabaceae family, because, yeah, we're often told that, yeah, they're one of the safer families to eat, but there are exceptions no, there are, to this. No, babies. they're not. <laughs> right, <laughs> they are okay. not.
1: No, yeah. they're one of the, I mean, it just depends. It's like APAC, the carrot family. There's a lot of stuff in there that's fine to eat. Yeah. There's a lot of deadly poisonous stuff in there, too, that you don't want to, and that's what I kind of tell people. There are some families, like the cactus family, generally fine you know i mean mescaline is an alkaloid produced by peyote and stuff doesn't won't kill you but it's definitely created as an herbivory defense but like the fruits of all all cacti have edible fruits some aren't really palatable but they're not poisonous but but for Basie, there's a lot of there's actually a lot of toxic members you know erythrina there's yeah. another is another one there's there's quite a few members that produce really you know deadly compounds in the in that family so
0: yeah, there's like a little clover lookalike that I hear sort of does a bit of damage to horses and stuff that have a go at it.
1: Is it native or is it a?
0: Ah, uh, no, it's an int- it's a worldwide one, I believe. Yeah, it's a weed. Can't remember what it's called though. I'm not very good with plant names. <laughs> so, how do you remember your plant names? Do you just is that just a? You just read it and then you just remember it because you are fantastic at it. You,
1: I got to get experience right. with the plant. you know, it's it's yeah, like, okay. you know, yeah. someone, it's like people, it's like someone tells me, you know, oh, hi, I'm blah, blah. I forget it three seconds later. But then when I've had yeah. a, when I've had a conversation with that person or gotten into a fight with them or something, I'll remember it, you know, really, <laughs> really readily. Normally it's just <laughs> a pleasant conversation, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that happens to me all the time. What's your name? They tell me. I'm like, oh shit, I forget. You know, and like five minutes later, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, what was your name again? I'm sorry, you know. But with plants, it's just, uh, I mean, it's Latin. It's your simple, you know, vowels alternating with continents, consonants. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'll see a plant in, in like a picture in a book or something, and I'll see the name, and I'm like, eh. But then once I see it in the field or like I get a reason to really study it because it's toxic or it's got a really cool evolutionary history or something, then, you know, I just kind of home in on it. But I forget shit a lot, especially now since, I mean, I've, Christ, I've I hit like 6,000 observations on INAT, which is nothing compared to some people I know. But for me, it's still a lot. like 6,000 observations on INAT a few weeks ago. And I'm like, you know, it just, it gets hard. iNaturalist is a big help. You know, because I've traveled so much so I can, you know, look up what was that name of that plant? I always remember what family it's in. It's the first thing I always ask, whatever plant I'm looking at, because that gives me context. That'll tell me what else it's related to, what chemicals it might produce, where it might be adapted to growing. Like certain families have a lot of members in deserts. Certain families have a lot of members in bogs and marshes. And so that gives me context. So I'll remember families all the time with a plant. I'll be like, oh, yeah, it was in this family. But like, you know, genera, I'll sometimes forget. And so then I'll just go to iNaturalist and type in the family, type in where I saw it, and then hit, you know, view my observations only It'll give me a list. So I use iNaturalist kind of like my own, like, journal, you know, of species I've seen. And it's an amazing tool for that.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know who taught me to identify to the family level? Thomas J. Elpel. Have you ever heard of him? He was the botany in a day guy
1: yeah 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 he was uh that's a good book I always tell people to get that if they're just if they have no idea if there's like starting from square one and then you know and that's fine whatever but he's he's not necessarily a scientist so I, I recommend his book for people just getting started and then if you really want to go deep it's worth shelling out a few more bucks for plant systematics by Michael Simpson who's a really good guy he's a friend of mine we became friends after I you know was re- already into his book cuz his book just breaks everything down and it's like a, it's a textbook i mean it's right next to me on the shelf but-
0: plant systematics 3rd edition this is
1: like the third third, ed- third edition
0: so speaking of families we've got some pretty iconic Aussie plant families like let's start with mortaceae how can we spot a mortaceae member out in the field
1: well that yeah that's what uh that's what uh i mean that's the whole idea right we group things taxonomically by floral structure which I didn't know and no one told me that until I was already like two or three years into studying this and once someone told me that it made everything a lot easier you know because now I had a formula so we group things by flower structure this is what Linnaeus started doing and it turns out that that was actually a good thing to go on in the absence of being able to look at DNA because you know 90% of the time flowers are a good thing that's inherited they're a stable thing that's inherited down an evolutionary lineage so Oftentimes, if, p- if things share the same flower structure, they're somewhat closely related, and that's kind of what Apple's book, you know, brings home, and that's certainly what plant systematics bring home. So, a trait that's inherited and is visible in all members of a lineage, and that indicates that they share a common ancestor, is called a synapomorphy, and that's you know one of the things that uh, once you understand that, you know, you you could I can go to a, a fucking continent I've never been to before and see something, a member of a family that also occurs in North America, and go, boom, that's in this family. And I know immediately. So it's an invaluable tool. Of course, you know, so things we originally grouped things by flower morphology, and then once polymerase chain reaction, the the ability to amplify strands of DNA so that we could get a better look at them, once that was uh, invented in the mid-'80s, the idea was, was... generated by a guy who was on acid while driving down California highway one, Kerry Mullis, who was a fucking wingnut too. I guess this guy like really went off the deep end later in life, but that doesn't surprise me being him being from Berkeley and all, (laughs) but, uh, but, uh, but once we got PCR, then we could look at DNA and say, okay, well, these barcodes match up and these gene regions. And so, you know, and that's still like a developing science. Soon we'll be able to, you know, instead of just looking at little bits of DNA gene regions, we'll be able to look at entire genomes. But anyway, yeah, to get back to your question. So like myrtaceae, the floral, what do the myrtaceae flowers look like? Five petals, you know, dozens of stamens, the gynoecium, the female parts in the middle, often, you know, woody fruits. Well, that's, it's kind of a key break for the family. So woody fruits, or in the case of like guavas and et cetera, they can have fleshy fruits, but definitely, you know, at least in in Australia, you know, you get to know, like, look at like a melaleuca flower or something you know i mean you see it's the same with it, you get variations on that too like a eucalypt flower that the petals are actually that cap that you know that hard cap that falls off and then but same thing you've got dozens of stamens and then the gynoesum's in the middle surrounded by all these all these stamens so yeah i mean that's basically just you know taxonomy and, and learning how to group things it's understanding looking at their flowers and understanding their floral morphology and with conifers it's the same thing you know like with the, some of the Podocarpaceae and Ericariaceae. you guys have quite a few Ericaria species and Agathis and Wolimia down there. So, yeah, we actually, we get a lot of Myrtaceae planted around California too as street trees. They're pretty hardy here for some reason and they're, you know, good for pollinators as well. But
0: Well, they're good for birds and insects. Uh, I here you guys also have a Eucalypt weed over there.
1: Yeah, it's mostly just globulus, which I, I'm i not sure. I think it's from the east mostly, but it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it forms these monocultures here that nothing grows beneath and then they catch fire. And especially in, in the hills east of the, east of the Bay Area, you know, so I think, and that's mostly a, a result of some guy, some lumber baron in the early 1900s deciding he was going to get rich. And apparently he didn't really study the tree too much you just assume the lumber was good and then it turned out the lumber wasn't that good and then you know of course eucalypts re-sprout from the base you know probably as an adaptation to fire and so they're just kind of a nightmare here now (laughs) we've been like in the process of removing them and you get these hippies who are like don't cut the trees don't cut you know well intentioned but they don't have the slightest understanding of ecology and so for us it's like well if you get rid of these eucalyptus forests these monocultures and we don't have any animals that feed on them or, you know, aside from like the flowers being beneficial to bees, mostly European honeybees, which are also invasive, you know, aside from that, they're not really, they're, they're kind of a desert, you know? So if we didn't have these eucalyptus forests, we would have plants like Coast Live Oak and, and Madrone and Bay Laurel and Coyote Bush and all these cool California plants, California natives that we have. So, and I think they're, you know, the, you, the eucalyptus forests are generally on their way out. They're, I don't think they're going to be around. And because I think people know, and the fire hazard too. So, yeah, but they've been bad out here. But it's just globulous, you know. Like I, I grew a, uh, oh, God damn it. What's the mountain? I can't remember the eucalyptus. uh, What's the one from Tasmania? The mountain ash, it's called. I forget the species. The the largest flowering plant in the world, tallest flowering plant in the world. Uh, Regnans. It was, yeah, eucalyptus uh, regnans. I grew one of those from seed and it made it to like 20 feet tall. And then we had a spate of, really drought years, dry winters and it died. I mean it just didn't you know, so I and that's the thing, I don't think most people realize there's eight hundred species or more of of eucalyptus. And it's really only a handful of species that are problematic out here. Some of you guys' acacias are really bad out here too. Melanoxalon and I think Farnesiana Yeah, spread like wildfire out here and and form these thickets, especially in, in, you know, blighted urban areas like old industry and stuff on the train tracks, whatever. And they'll form these, just these, you know, like the only tree growing. So, you know, I I believe they're nitrogen fixing too. They've got nitrogen fixing bacteria. But either way, I mean, it's nice in a way because you're like, well, it's this kind of dump, you know, it's blighted and industrial and probably really toxic. And it's these trees are thriving. But, you know, they also end up spreading in the wild areas. And if you get one of those coming up next to your house, it'll destroy your foundation. So... But yeah, a lot of the acacias are, are do really well out here too. The Australian acacias,
0: yeah, because you're in a similar sort of a climate, in that Mediterranean climate, where they tend to thrive.
1: Right. Yeah, and they're they're drought adapted. I mean, it's I love the genus. It's cool. It's there's some, yeah. uh, and it's really interesting too. I mean, you know the with their what is it, their phylodes? You know they're they've got their quasi leaves that they create. But yeah, it's just one of those things where they're out of place here and they just do more damage than good. They say that's something I always try to explain to people who don't really understand the the problem with invasive species yet, you know, and they anthropomorphize it and they're like, why do you, di- why don't you like plants? This is normally like these sheltered hippies, I feel like, you know, why do you dislike these planets? Like, well, it's be- let me explain to you how ecosystems work and evolution and how, you know, these, these plants evolved together over millions of years, kind of working it out, you know. And then when you, you basically wipe all that away, when you bring something to a new continent where it doesn't have any of the insects or fungi or animals that keep it in check, and then you just let it loose and it becomes a problem, and then you actually start seeing a reduction in diversity. So it's, again, it's just this short-sighted, it's, it's depressing for me to see people thinking like this because it's just this really short-sighted, myopic, unwilling to admit that you don't know viewpoint. You know, like if you didn't know something and someone was giving you some like a heads up when you want to be like, oh, really? Like, I kind of want to read more about that. Instead, people, if you get this ego to defend and you just or this vision of the world that you want to cling to. And you just, nah, I want I won't I'm not willing to risk that at all. You know, you must be wrong. Get out of here. You know, so, and that's kind of the. Yeah, I mean, it's the age, not just with plants, but of like culture in general that we're living in. That's why it's like I just I've kind of become a nihilist because I'm like, well, it's you know, there's really no talking to some people. There's no convincing them. You just got to let it go and just kind of watch the general decline and and uh and try to just, you know, remember no one gets out of this alive, so take yeah. it easy, you know?
0: Something I heard once was enlightenment is for the individual, not for the masses.
1: I mean, yeah, the people, a lot of people, I mean, we're, the, the way the human species works, it does all the most horrible shit in, in, in a herd, in a group, you know? The individual is kind of where the... The gems are, you know, people who don't pay attention to all that, they just do their own thing. They find a way to make it work for them. But also without really being concerned what the herd will think or looking for without looking for validation from the herd, et cetera, you know. But while still having like a general sense of like collectivism, you know. So uh yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a it's a weird age, man. It's a weird age and it's I don't see it getting any better.
0: Yeah no i know what you mean no i feel that so let's get back onto plants and something we can sort of feel a bit better about but we've got grass trees in australia and that's an example of convergent evolution can you explain what's going on there
1: yeah well i they've both got highly reduced leaves they're both monocots it's uh xanthoria and then uh, what is it what's the other one uh kenya yeah and uh so you got two different families xanthoriaceae and dazepogonaceae and they're both responding i mean I, the the small leaves it's both are response to fire adaptation to fire and adaptation to drought and adaptation to herbivory to an extent too because not many things want to munch on those spiny really thin plasticky needles and so i you know i like that it's cool because you i didn't even no one told me that when i got there that there were these two things that look a lot alike so i just kind of figured it out on my own i was these things look a little different and then Of course, when you get, when you see the flowers, it's a dead giveaway. It's like, oh, okay, these are totally different plants or, you know, lineages. But, uh, you know, it's the same thing with, uh, with cacti and euphorbias, you know, some of the South African euphorbias. And then, of course, the neotropical cacti. I mean, both, both respond to growing in a a drought stricken, hot environment where, you know, anything that's large or medium size is going to be the first thing on the menu for. Vertebrates that want to eat it, and so, but also in an area where it's so hot that you know you've got to figure out a way around. You got to figure out how to take in carbon dioxide through your pores without letting out too much water. And so they've both done a pretty good job of figuring that out. They're both leafless for the most part. They're both stem photosynthesizers. They both, in the case of euphorbia, they produce a lot of nasty chemicals and latex and that toxic sap. The base tissue from which the spines emerge is different in both in both lineages in euphorbia it's uh, stipules i believe and in in cacti it's axillary leaf buds and you can tell that when you look when you look closer at them and of course if, if they're both in flower you can it's readily readily evident but uh but yeah i mean convergent evolution that's that's the same that's the same reason why you know when once molecular analysis and molecular phylogenies, you know, phylogeny is just an evolutionary tree of a family or a plant lineage. Once, once it was able to, once we were able to look at DNA, you know, using PCR and and looking at gene regions and comparing DNA barcodes, et cetera, we realized that some things that we thought were more closely related, a a lot of, some plants were more closely, were not as closely related as we thought they were, you know, from just looking at their flowers previously. You know, once we could look at the DNA, we realized, oh, wow, we got it wrong these the flowers do look a lot alike of course if you look closer they're they're not perfectly alike you can see some some uh nuance there but when you look at the dna it turns out these are different totally different lineages you know or they they're more closely related to this than they are to think the things that we group them with so and i love thinking about that i love thinking about convergent evolution versus you know homology the the shared traits being shared because of you know, two species sharing a common ancestor. I love thinking about within a family or even a genus itself, like why, how many times did this trait evolve the production of this chemical? Like we often think, well, they both produce this chemical and they're in the same genus. They're evidently closely related. So they must have both, you know, inherited this from a common ancestor. And then we look at the DNA and it turns out, wait, no, this one inherited it a few million years before this one seems to. And and it's the genetic toolbox, quote unquote, was just there. And so this was just evolved secondarily in this other lineage within a, a genus, you know, who knows, maybe three, four million years ago, something like that. And and that stuff's really cool to think about, you know, because how does that happen? How does it, it's all just about evolution and selective pressure and, and then, you know, vast amounts of time and, and the right conditions for these things to occur. So you know, I like that we get a genus out here called uh, Streptanthus, which is a uh, really common on a very toxic soil and rock type that we get out in California called serpentine. It's an ultramorphic rock. It's generally almost always associated with subduction zones. It gets scraped off the ocean crust and then metamorphosed, and then kind of slapped onto the side of the continent like a, a little bit of spackling paste on some drywall. And uh, we get these big these big uh, exposures of it in California, and it basically creates new species of plants because most plants can't evolve. most plants can't grow on it, you know, but eventually if they're around it long enough, there's going to be mutations in some of those seeds and some of those seeds might land on the serpentine. and it turns out that this one offspring has a mutation that allows it to tolerate this harsh chemistry, the excess nickel, the lack of calcium, etc. And so it's able to grow on serpentine. And not only is it now able to grow on serpentine, but it doesn't have to compete with anything because nothing else can grow there. So now it just reproduces and reproduces. And that allele, that variation of a gene that allows it to grow on serpentine, then gets amplified by being successful in that environment. So and, and lots of soil types do that. I mean, limestone can be presents its own obstacles to plants. Gypsum, especially, creates its own obstacles to plants. You get gypsum in deserts. You're not going to get gypsum in areas where it rains a lot because it is too water soluble. It'll just wash away eventually. But anyway, so we get this genus called Streptanthus. It's in the mustard family, Brassicaceae, and and there's a lot of Streptanthus. They speciate readily. There's there's like 20 or 25 species in California. And like half of them grow on serpentine. They're endemic to serpentine. They don't grow anywhere else. And so it was assumed, prim- you know, previously that all these all these species in the genus Streptanthus must have shared a direct common ancestor. They all inherited the serpentine tolerance from this common ancestor. And when it was looked, when people took a closer look at the morphology, it was figured out that they didn't. They These were five separate evolutionary events that occurred. So this, this lineage... You know, different populations just on their own evolved tolerance to serpentine, which is a really toxic rock. It's got a lot of heavy metals in it, and it's really low in nutrients. Whenever you're on these serpentine, and it's also like blue, like you'll, it's blue. It's a really cool landscape out here. You'll see, you'll see it, and I, I saw it in New Caledonia too, which is a little bit more closer to where you guys are. You know, just off the off the east east coast of Australia, right there, 500 miles off the east coast, but whatever. A lot of serpentine there too. And so it's it's a cool landscape. the stuff that grows on serpentine, even the trees like they're all spindly and branchless and they they look just nutrient poor and stressed, you know like some something that's been in a pot too long and so but these these species in this in the Brassica family and the mustard family do do great so when i when I learned that i mean i that kind of blew me away. I was like, god it's changes it challenges all of our assumptions, you know, like nothing is necessarily that easy in evolution sometimes it is but sometimes what you assumed is totally off off base and
0: i think what you said there about the genetic toolbox makes a lot of sense you know like me and my brother might have some of the same tools that we've inherited from our father but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're both going to open them at the same time
1: genetic pode- yeah genetic potential and predisposition is a, is a better way to think of it like you've already got the toolbox there you know, so you've got the tools at your disposal for this stuff to evolve. Doesn't mean it's necessarily going to, but it might.
0: Mm. So it's like dinosaurs all had feathers at one point, but not all of them turned into birds, sort of thing. No, it's different. That's a different thing.
1: No, anyway. no, yeah, because not all dinosaurs had feathers. No, it, you know, it's just like uh, certain plant families have just have, have for whatever it is they've got. Uh, my friend Tom Givnish at UW Madison studies this. A lot, but you know, certain plant families just will—they'll will have a, a genetic disposition towards evolving certain chemistry, especially. You know, I mean, at least in the terms of in the way that 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 organisms that plants synthesize chemicals, and this is gets pretty heady and deep, but you know, they'll it'll—it's only an e- it's an easier switch for some families to you know switch their coding so that now they're producing this one chemical than it is for other families. You know, so evidently. In the mustard family, it's easier, you know, it takes maybe less mutations for this certain thing to occur than it than it does in the, the composite family, the asteraceae family, you know. So it's, so those mutations are more likely to occur in the mustard family to tolerate shitty soil, lousy soil and serpentine, et cetera. And that's why, I mean, it makes sense too. You look at like a lot of weeds are mustards, you know a lot of weeds growing in, in barren lots or old industrial sites or places where the concrete, you know, it's been abandoned for 20 years and the concrete's all broken up. And there's some cracks. And so there's a, there's a lot of weedy mustards. There's a lot of weedy Asteraceae too, you know? So both of those, yeah, they just, Asteraceae especially, it's got, I mean, genetically, I wonder about it. They're, they're so plastic. They've got so much at their disposal, at least in terms of evolution. and And that's probably why they're so, they're so species-rich all over the world. I mean, like 25,000 species in that family. And uh, why they're so ecologically successful, too. And why so many of them are weeds as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we've got these communities of plants and animals and fungi and all the rest, bacterias, etc., all growing in these ecosystems that stabilize over vast periods of time. And then we have something happen like Europeans arrive in Australia and start farming cane for sugar up in the tropics. Then we get a cane beetle that comes and attacks them and we don't have a natural predator for that pest. So we bring in a cane toad into the environment to eat that cane beetle. Unfortunately, the cane toad doesn't climb the stalks and doesn't actually eat the cane beetle. So now Australia has a huge problem with cane toads, which just never went away. And there's nothing that we've done in the past that successfully eradicated them. So what do you think are the chances of something like a cane toad becoming naturalized and beneficial to the native ecology? What would have to happen for that to occur?
1: Well, first off, that's what happens. I mean, in the past, you know, humans weren't the first things to transport species to new continents or or cross oceans with them. Birds would do it. Sometimes wind currents would do it. But it was really rare, you know. It was a really rare event, and you, this is what people who study biogeography study. So these dispersal events, as, as we call them, were pretty rare, but they would happen. And they're rare, too. I mean, it's rare for it to make it across an ocean, and it's even a more rare thing for that seed to actually germinate in a spot that's suitable for it and be able to outcompete the flora and this, the, the right. It's got to be the perfect storm. So these dispersal events would happen, and you know, who knows what what havoc they might have caused in the ecosystem when it did. You know, this is, of course, pre-human, but eventually, eventually that would reach a stasis and it would, you know, if it that if it forms a monoculture and it's so successful, eventually, eventually something evolves to colonize it or eat it or keep it in check. You know, it's again, nature, whatever that word means, doesn't you know, it, it needs a balance. It always does. It's always going to reach a stasis. Might take a million years, you know, but and it might species might go extinct in the in the meantime. But eventually, it'll reach a stasis. What we've done with invasives is we've something that used to only happen every million years, two million years. We've done that, you know, fifty thousand times over in the last century, and we've kind of overloaded ecosystems all over the world by just throwing these monkey wrenches in the way that they work. And eventually, yeah, theoretically, you know something would evolve to either a disease would come up and and annihilate the cane toad population and put them in check or something would evolve a fungus maybe some of the australian vertebrates would evolve to eat them and keep them in check but it might take yeah again it might take 500,000 a million years and then in the meantime what what goes extinct you know what what have we lost And also it's not going to happen if people are still bringing cane toads, if they're still bringing new genes from outside populations into the population that's in Australia, that's going to that's who knows what that's going to do to the evolution of the Australian population. You know, it's the same thing with weeds. It's like for it to be chill, humans would have to just completely stop transporting this stuff, which isn't going to happen as long as we're around. And then, yeah, eventually, eventually they would become naturalized and it'd be all good. I guess, so to speak, after however many extinctions or whatever, but but yeah, I mean that's the way that's the way it works, and that's what we've seen with with other uh, plants. You know, I mean that's the thing with we have molecular clocks too. So you what that is, and it's a kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around at, at first, but you can calibrate based on mutation rates by looking at a plant's genome when it diverged from another closely related species or population, even and and how back like we can tell that like marijuana and hops diverged sometime around 10 million years ago by comparing their genomes you know and by holding it up to data and running this through a program and looking at those little c- series of a, T, C's, and Gs and in both and can you know seeing how much they differ and of course it's kind of taken a lot into account you know you have to assume that the mutation rate's stable in which a lot of cases it is sometimes it's not I don't know and then you know but it gives you an idea so yeah, I mean, eventually things naturalize, but yeah, what do we lose in the meantime? So, you know, I think with, with an eradicating invasive species, the goal shouldn't be, we're going to get all of it because you're not. But if you had cancer, you know, would, would it be, and some people maybe would maybe this is a bad analogy to use, but if you, if you had cancer, would you just, and you told you that you had a chance to like live a few more years, would you fight it or would you just give up, you know? And that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to buy time basically and maintain and prevent extinction. So it's not like, we're going to get, you know, you're never going to get all of it. Well, fucker, the goal isn't to get all of it. The goal is to, you know, be a steward of the ecosystem that we've now, you know, potentially screwed up and give native species a chance to live and, and maintain some integrity here. And also maybe just make it a nice place to walk around. Like, you don't want to walk around an area that's, you know, in California that's filled with pampas grass that's choking out everything else. Pampas grass is from, you know, South America, you know, or a place that's filled up with scotch broom you know, a Eurasian uh, legume that's choking out, you know, that chokes out the chaparral. I mean, you you just don't. So it's, yeah, I don't know. I think it's again, that whole, the goal shouldn't be full eradication. If you can do that, cool, but you're probably not gonna be able to do it. The the goal is just to maintain, you know, and be a good steward and prevent extinction of other plants that the invasive uh, or the invasive animal in this case, you know, kills. So. Hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So how important do you think it is for young botanists to keep coming through and forge their own path within this space?
1: What do you mean forge their own path? I mean I guess just I guess what I, I guess what I tell people is just you know do this because you love it and uh, if you really love it, you'll figure out a way to do it whether you can make it your job or not you know I mean there's there's no end to, to studying this stuff and learning about it and, and observing it and just always be asking questions I mean if you're not asking questions. If you look at something and you just take it at face value, there's a problem there. You, you know, always wonder why does it do this? Why does it grow here? What is it? You know, how did how did this thing evolve? Why does it have this relationship with these things? You know, it's I mean, there's there's so much. You just got to be, you just got to be asking questions and thinking about things in a, in a right context instead of just instead of just accepting. Them. I mean, that kind of goes with anything, you know. And I think it's easy, especially in this day and age, to get so distracted by these phones and all this other stupid shit that it's really easy to just take things at face value and not think about them or question them or wonder how they came into being or wonder how why is it like this or etc. So
0: Absolutely. So Joey, I would like to ask our guests at the end of the episode, is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about?
1: No, I mean not not really, man. I guess uh, you know, if you want to understand the world around you, whether it's plants or whether it's astronomy or whatever just you got to just make it your passion and dive into it you know because you know you need you need something to, to fixate on we all do and it can be something negative or it can be something positive i know if i didn't have plants i'd be in a lot more trouble than i am who knows where i'd be and i just you know especially with the sciences with any science i mean the more the more questions you answer the more questions open up and you could study this stuff your whole life you know whether it's this or organic chemistry or whatever i mean and uh never run out of stuff to learn, you know? And if, I mean, I think school messes people up because it's this whole, like, you have to do this. You have to learn it without being able to understand why it should be important or why it's fun yet. If it's not fun, don't do it. If it sucks, don't do it. You know, you should be getting, like, I get a little shot of dopamine when I read about, you know, how a plant evolved or, or a paper that shows that some plant was more closely related to another plant than we originally thought or, or how, you know, plants moved up and down the Andes Mountains of South America, you know, over over geologic time and climate change and all this stuff. And it's just I mean, it's it just makes my imagination run wild. And I'm just like, God damn, that's so cool. And philosophically, it just it kind of soothes me, too, because it gives me a better understanding of where I fit in and where we all fit in and and how to think about the world, you know, because I, I look at. You look at the human world and you don't know how to think about it. I mean, it's just chaos and insanity and violence and stupidity. And I mean, there's some good stuff in there, too, I guess. But I don't I don't not in not in the masses. I don't see any of it. And so this stuff makes sense. You know, it makes a lot more sense than it does in the world that we humans are creating for ourselves. You know, and I think there's a lot of wisdom there that we could gain a lot of, uh, context and perspective and philosophy from just by paying attention to it. I mean, just by paying attention to the quote natural world, which is really just the real world. It's the world as it existed before we made all this goofy shit up. So yeah, I just stay passionate and immerse yourself in it. And if it's not fun, you're not doing it right. Or you got to find something else. I don't know. Totally agree,
0: mate. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Joey. What a great episode. Appreciate you, man. Thanks
1: for having me, man. Take it easy. Bye.
0: If you enjoyed hearing Joey talk about plants, head on over to YouTube and search for Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't. Or simply check the show notes for his YouTube and social media links. If you're listening on an Apple device, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star review with a comment letting me know what you thought about this episode. Thanks.